Victory in the Second World War, in Europe anyway, came a day late to the Soviet Union. That's a technicality, of course. Germany's definitive surrender was signed late in the evening on May 8th, and it was already May 9th to the east in Moscow. This month marks the 78th anniversary of that victory, and though the West has enjoyed one more calendar day in this post-war world than Moscow, the defeat of the Nazis has remained central to Russian national identity and political culture in ways that would probably make your head spin if you're from Europe or North America. May 9th, Victory Day, is still one of the most important holidays in Russia today. While other former Soviet republics and satellite states have embraced the anniversaries of their independence from Moscow, Russia's foundational myth still relies largely on beating the Nazis and ridding Europe of fascism. With Russian troops on the march again, the Second World War's legacy, and especially that belief that the nation has a mission to fight fascism, this historical memory is as important as ever for the Kremlin, as it confronts what it insists to the Russian public and the outside world is the Kiev Nazi regime. Do a little thought experiment with me. Think back to your childhood, or if you're a parent, imagine your own kid in the first grade. Russian school children from the first grade to the 11th grade are getting a renewed indoctrination this year in Victory Day and the modern-day meeting of World War II. The other voice you're hearing right now belongs to Ivan Litkin, a 97-year-old veteran of the Second World War. In its prepared materials this year for lessons about Victory Day, Russia's education ministry has included a nine-minute video featuring a lecture from Mr. Litkin, where he talks about serving in the Red Army as a teenager. The entire second half of his remarks, however, are devoted to a diatribe about today's war in Ukraine. Imagine being a six-year-old kid and hearing this in school. If we forget the great patriotic war, Russia will cease to exist. We cannot allow this because we have volunteers going and fighting in Ukraine. The West, especially America, they blame us. They accuse us of starting this war. But we didn't start this war. For eight years, from 2014 to 2022, they flooded the area with Bandera lovers. They flooded it with people from other countries. They brought in a lot of weapons. If we fought like the Americans fought in Iraq, when they bombed everyone in sight and more than a million civilians, Iraqis were killed. We can't act like that. Our goal is to liberate Ukraine and we will attain victory. So, what's going on with May 9th in Russia, as the invasion in Ukraine drags on and the Putin regime slides ever deeper into authoritarianism? That's the subject of this week's show. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On this week's show, we're taking a look at the role of Victory Day in modern Russia, focusing on memory politics and how the Putin regime uses this holiday and the legacy of the Second World War generally to achieve its own ends during Russia's bloody invasion of Ukraine. At the time of this recording, May 9th is just a few days away. And the holiday is unusual this year because numerous cities across Russia have actually canceled their public parades and moved festivities back to the virtual spaces they inhabited at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. The war in Ukraine has forced some changes in one of Russia's holiest of holidays. But before we get to today's guest, let me turn it over to one of my colleagues for a brief message on behalf of our newsroom. 
Emily Laskin here, news editor for Medusa's English Language Edition. For the better part of a decade, we've brought you breaking news and in-depth stories from across Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. We have millions of readers in Russian and in English around the world, and we remain the biggest independent news source inside Russia. For readers in Russia, though, openly supporting or sharing our work is dangerous. Earlier this year, the Russian authorities designated Medusa an undesirable organization, outlawing or reporting on the grounds that it poses a national security threat. In other words, all of our work, from investigative reports and podcasts to social media posts and newsletters, it's all a crime now inside Russia. And anyone living in Russia who shares our work or donates money to our crowdfunding campaign risks criminal charges that could land them in prison for years. That's where you, our international audience, can make a huge difference. Your support has never been more important than it is now, and your donations sustain our work now more than ever. So please contribute if you can and help spread the word about our crowdfunding campaign. Okay, back to the show. For this episode, I spoke to Dr. Allison Edwards, a lecturer in global histories and politics at Bath Spa University in England. Her research specializes on the topics of Russian militarism, youth militarization, and the use of history and commemoration. We talked about the so-called Immortal Regiment, Victory Day's past legacy of anti-militarism, and a lot more. Now here's the interview. How did the Russian state's mythology about the Second World War, the Great Patriotic War, you know, as it's known locally, how did that come to be? Like, is it has the Putin regime basically recycled what it inherited from the Soviet Union, or has it changed a lot? Or is it, has it even changed much from the Yeltsin era? Like, what's the kind of evolution of, of this holiday and this, this memory and its significance for the state? The mythology of the Great Patriotic War is not something that Putin's created. It's something that he's seen to have taken to another level, but actually a lot of what he's doing is recycled from, as you said, the Soviet period. The, the person that you can be considered as, I guess, the father of the great patriotic war myth would be Brezhnev. So we'd be going back as, as early as the 1960s. But yes, it's been a, a sort of tradition since. And um, one, one of the kind of arguments I've made in my work, because a lot of emphasis of this is on Putin, is actually it's not Putin who revives it in the post-Soviet period. It is Yeltsin. And he does that in the 1995 Victory Day Parade which marked the 50th year of the Great Patriotic War. The way that he, so Yeltsin himself, brought it back in was, first of all, by reintroducing the Victory Day celebrations on a national level, but also by reintroducing the Soviet paraphernalia on Red Square, by reintroducing the formations, you know, as we see now, a kind of a replication of what took place Back in June of the 24th, 1945, the first Victory Day parade in terms of people standing in their particular factions on Red Square. And there was leading the procession. Well, in 1945, they were riding through on horses. But now in 1990s, we see them driving through in cars. And that's what we see in, in Russia today. But what we see that's slightly different is that there are more younger people acting out the role of those glorious dead because those people are either no longer with us or possibly can't stand for hours on end on, on the Red Square. So there's been renovations for sure. But yeah, it definitely doesn't start with Putin. It's, it's always struck me that, and I understand that the reasons for it have to do with the fact that the Soviet Union lost so many people in the Second World War and it was, it, you know, it affected life there in the, in the decades afterwards far more 
than it did, say, in the United States, obviously, but even really anywhere else, maybe outside of China, I guess. But to your knowledge, is, is the way that World War II is remembered, or at least like the extent to which it is remembered and celebrated and made a part of kind of justifications for like the existence of the country today, is it unique or are there other countries that do it to a similar degree or use other wars to a similar degree? Yeah, I think so. I think Russia is definitely unique in using the Great Patriotic War to this extent with the military parades, but it's not the only country to use military parades in a commemorative way. And you'll see that with China, for example, and North Korea. But every country has a specific focus when it comes to kind of what history they center as part of their national identity. So for Russia, it's about the Great Patriotic War. And as you said, it's because of that that huge loss, 27 million people died during that time. And so, you know, at some point, one person in the Soviet Union will know someone who was who's died or affected by the war in some way. For the UK, it's um, it's often World War One. So even though World War II, we talk about kind of the greatest generation, that's how we define people who were around during World War II. World War One seems to have a, a more central focus in British identity, for example. But we don't see uh, military parades around that. We see the commemoration at the Cenotaph in London. I guess if I was to compare it with something in the UK that's of maybe a, a huge display of grandeur, I'd probably think of the upcoming coronation. Mm-hmm. But that then only happens when yeah. a, a new king or queen is being crowned, right. I guess. So mm-hmm. that didn't that happened like 70 years ago. Whereas for Russia, this the unique thing is that it's not just a huge parade that happens on significant dates. It's every year. May the 9th is a significant time period. So every year they're funneling so much money into this, so much organization into it. So I'd say it's it's huge and unique in that sense. How significant would you say World War II is to the Kremlin's general political agenda when it comes to memory politics now? It is the most important. I would say it's, as I said, every country has a sort of history at centrals in its ability to form an identity. And for Russia, the Great Patriotic War is that most usable pass. First of all, because, as I said, many people died. So there's at least someone that will identify with it specifically. But because it's been used so often in Russia, basically since the actual war itself. But the other thing about the Great Patriotic War is that it fits into this larger narrative of the Kremlin. And it's not just Putin's Kremlin, Kremlins that existed before him in the sense that Russia is part of this kind of, it's a besieged fortress. That's how it kind of identifies itself. And the events of the Great Patriotic War have happened before the Great Patriotic War, and they're very likely to happen again. And that's in the psyche. There's so, there's like a sort of a cycle in how Russia understands its position in the sense that it's kind of always going through these traumatic experiences, but it's coming out of these experiences victorious. It's one scholar I kind of follow, Olga Malinova, refers to it as a phoenix who rises from the ashes. And I think that's the central focus of, that's kind of the central theme that the Great Patriotic War fits so nicely into. And that's why at the moment it's the central focus of of the Kremlin because it's the biggest conflict they've been involved in, or the most recent conflict it's been involved in that's been that big. So do you think, on one hand, Russian propaganda or Russian public justifications domestically for the, the invasion of Ukraine, they rely intensely on the memory of World War II, the Great Patriotic War. But it also sounds like what you're saying is that 
it's it's not even so much a single event that they're appealing to so much as a pattern that identifies what Russia is. It's this like phoenix that is perpetually surrounded, occasionally invaded or challenged, and then it overcomes you know these incredible odds. And so potentially, if they weren't going to use World War II or if they didn't have World War II to, to use, they could they could go back to Napoleon. And for all, you know, they, if, if the UK can lean on World War One today, then why not have Putin lean on Napoleon? Like it's all, all this stuff is, the sort of thing is, is theoretically possible, I guess. Yeah, it's, so if they didn't have World War Two, they could call on other periods of, of history that Russia has, as you said, been surrounded, struggled, yeah. um, and eventually been victorious. The utility of World War Two in this specific case study is that Russia is supposedly in this special military operation with Ukraine because of fascism in Ukraine. It's trying to denazify, and that's the story that binds together the Great Patriotic War, what's happening now. And so what it does is, first of all, people who are still alive who are around during the Great Patriotic War, what they're trying to do is tap into that feelings, those, those nostalgic feelings of people uniting during that time. And I guess the way that the story of the Great Patriotic War and uh, the Soviet Union's loss of life because of Nazi Germany, but then also its victory because of the the acts of ordinary people, the heroic acts of ordinary people against Nazi Germany, Stri- strike a chord with younger generations who have been kind of confronted constantly every year with the same discourses. In terms of the past celebrations of Victory Day and the you know the Soviet victory over the Nazis and how it's been articulated, it's it seems like there there have often been. The articulation of this holiday, in the past at least, it's manifested often in anti-war or anti-militarism sort of slogans and rhetoric and slogans like anything but war, like that, that Russia is the defender of peace more than anything. You know, that has been part of the, the presentation of this memory. And obviously that doesn't work so well now, even though obviously Russia doesn't claim to have started the war, they claim to be, you know, they, they blame Ukraine and the West for that. But like, how elastic is the memory of World War II? Like, is it hardwired as a anti-war thing? Like, when people remember World War II or this Great Patriotic War, it's inevitable that they start thinking about like the horrors of war and how that can never happen again. Or is it so elastic that if propaganda machine just decides to use that memory as a way to rile up everybody and think like, okay, like you're gun again, we're going to do it again. Like it, that works as well too. Yeah, I think so. I think it's flexible. I think that there's, <laughs> uh-huh. I, and I, I don't think it's necessarily the actual specific story of the Great Patriotic War. I think it's that general knowledge of that general cycle that I was talking about, about how something terrible happens to Russia. Right. So for us from the outsiders see it in a different light in the sense of Russia started because of this war with Ukraine, right? But um, in Russia, the story is that Russia is always humiliated. So um, you might have heard for quite a, a while especially when it's kind of repeated by people like Macron about not humiliating Russia and Putin's using that framework in order to justify its tensions with the West and its actions in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, yeah, the, the Great Patriotic War is part of that wider narrative of Russia being humiliated, Russia then kind of standing up for itself, Russia then struggling because maybe it's facing a more superior Opposite, which is is quite a characteristic, actually, of a lot of the stories they present. But then because of that struggle, because of the hero- those heroic actions, because of maybe sacrifice, yeah. definitely sacrifice. I don't know why I said maybe. It's all it's in a lot of the narratives about war in Russia and in a lot of the, the ways that the state talks about commemoration. That ultimate sacrifice is worth it. That's what it's framed as. 
And they do have a record of losing more people than the enemy usually, right? So it's not it's not baseless. No, and I, I think I, I, one of the ways that I've tried to describe it before is that, you know, someone else has built the house and Putin's just decorating it. You know, the, the framework for these discourses have existed for a long, long time, but it's just about attaching a different mini narrative to that, to that wider mm-hmm. discourse, that wider framework. There's a lot of there are a lot of debates now about whether how we assign responsibility for the invasion, and then you get into debates of of is this Putin's war, is this Russia's war, is it the Kremlin that's imperialistic, or is it all of Russian society or Russian culture, and, and then you get into debates about you know exactly what needs to be canceled or reassessed and so on. In terms of militarism, do you think that is Russia only as militaristic as the ruling regime, or is the regime responding to some kind of fundamental and well established militaristic vibe or something or is this is this yeah, a dumb question is this like chicken and chicken and the egg kind of stuff it's not it's not a dumb question but i think we'll and this sounds like a cop out on my end i don't think we'll ever really know because it does feed into that question about whether this is putin's war or whether this is everyone in russia's war right and i think that we will never really know who supports it and whether whoever is victorious at the end whether people will have changed their answer to me to like fit into who was one at the end. But I think that these narratives are deeply rooted in society. Mm-hmm. So I think that the discussions that they, the points that they raise around like the great sacrifice of the Russian people, the Russian people rising through the ashes like a phoenix, I think that those make sense to the Russian people. And I'm say, I'm not trying to, you know, paint them all in one brush. I don't, but I don't think that this is just a propaganda system of Putin. I think that it's a propaganda system that has is, is existed a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And if you are someone who's been faced consistently with those discourses, narratives, if you have, especially in the current climate, being cut off, for example, from the outside world in terms of internet access or or things like that, you know, you, you're unlikely to see other narratives. But at the same time, there will be people who can see it as well. Um, as I said, it's so complicated. You mentioned humil- humiliation earlier in your remarks. And I can't remember exactly which scholar was arguing this, or it might be just sort of a lot of them, basically. In terms of like trying to do kind of mass psychoanalysis of the Russian people, the notion being that humiliation or like a sense of uh, of being wronged, that that fuels a lot of the a lot of what Putin has essentially mobilized, I guess. And again, I... I I mean, does it, it seems like there's no, there's never going to be a satisfying answer for where that cycle began exactly because it's so mutually reinforcing. But what is, it, what do you think the role of humiliation is in the way Victory Day is celebrated? Because obviously it's like a proud moment, but where there's for there to be pride, there has to be a lack of pride elsewhere. And so, like, what's the pl- what's the interplay between a holiday like Victory Day and this notion of of kind of like national humiliation? The humiliation is is kind of used as a framework of. Russia, Soviet Union was humiliated, but we overcome that. We overcame that humiliation. And I think it works really well in a society like Russia because it's a largely patriarchal society. It's a huge kind of hyper-masculinity within society. And so when we're talking about humiliation, it's almost like a um, humiliation is even worse in Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, how on earth can the Russian people be humiliated because of those like gendered aspects, the way that that Russian society is is created in terms of in terms of it being a patriarchal society, for example. But I think it's used in a very clever way. It's not dissimilar to to China using it. China uses um, this period, this century of humiliation, talking about basically how China has managed to survive 
and to thrive and prosper despite humiliation, a century of humiliation by the West. And what we've seen, particularly, I, I would say that this humiliation framework is probably a little bit more Putin. There have been times when past leaders have talked about, you know, Russia being tricked, for example, by Nazi Germany in the early stages of war or not being supported by the Allies properly enough during the war and Russia having to, you know, sacrifice a lot of people in order to kind of overcome those difficulties. But Putin's now talking about it, I think, in the framework of humiliation because he's trying to relate it to what's happening in Ukraine and what he sees in Ukraine, the potential loss of Ukraine for them to NATO, to the EU, he's trying to create those kind of direct links between the Great Patriotic War now through this framework of humiliation. What is the immortal regiment? It's kind of, it's like an awfully big sounding thing, right? Like if you, if I imagine going to my, one of my kids and being like, are you ready to take part in this year's immortal regiment? Um, <laughs> what, what is this thing? What is it? Yeah, I had some sort of image in my mind when I first heard of it or some sort of like Lord of the Rings right. third movie with like <laughs> sure, yeah. the, the ghost. Yeah. Um, That's right, crew, but... jumping off the ships, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the Immortal Regiment was a kind of initiative founded Tomsk. And Tomsk is a about four hours on a train from Novosibirsk. I went there once. And um, it's, a, it's quite a militaristic little town city. I don't really know how to describe it. But I went to these like archives and they had their own little like Tomps army newspaper back in the day. And they have this huge World War II memorial, this huge great patriotic war memorial there. It's, it's absolutely massive. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was created, the, the idea or the concept of the Immortal Regiment was decided there. And it's um, supported by initiatives like Victory Volunteers. So they're a youth patriotic group funded by the state, run by Olga Zanko. And what they basically do is people take to certain parts of their regions. They plan out a route, they walk down that route, they kind of like march down that route. I don't know if it's as, as a march as such or kind of like a solemn walk of remembrance where they carry placards of Great Patriotic War veterans or people who died in the Great Patriotic War. And it could even be that they don't even know anyone from the Great Patriotic War and they just buy this picture of some random person to carry with them. You'll often see sometimes veterans if not, not always great patriotic war veterans or veterans of other war wearing their, wearing their uniform. You see little kids dressed in uniform as well. And they basically take a walk to usually a memorial point in a city. And there are thousands of them for the last few years. Apart, last year was when they held it normally in the sense of marching. But the COVID years, they held it online, which is what they're proposing to do with the Immortal Regiment again, to hold it in other formats instead of kind of walking down in a mass down the streets. And so what do you make of the cancellations? I know that ostensibly it has to do with security concerns, at least in areas closer to Ukraine, has to do with security concerns because of, you know, I don't know, artillery fire over the border or drones or something like this. I mean, I, I, you might not be able to assess like whether this, what exactly the, the public security concerns are, but in terms of the impact, the consequences for the Kremlin's memory politics, is this like a setback or is this something that they're going out of their way to do? Because this memory or these, these, rather these rituals have become difficult or problematic somehow during the war. I don't think the histories themselves have been problematic, have become problematic. I think from an outsider it has because it's they're been... Still, they're still useful. Yeah, it's useful to the Kremlin. I think uh, an outsider point of view, we can see like how much it's been turned or changed or altered 
to or manipulated even to to work with the current climate, what they what they currently want to do with Ukraine. But I think there's like several. There's there's some good points for the Kremlin, but there are also some negatives for the Kremlin on this. I think that actually, because they cancelled Victory Day Parade in, in lots of the regions like Belgorod, Kursk, Voronezh. So there's lots of regions who where are kind of like in the south of Russia, but also on the borders. So as you said, borders of Ukraine. And I think that they're saying that they think it's because of security reasons. And, you know, with the war taking place, I don't know. It seems interesting that it's the ones in the re- tend to be on the border that are cancelling. But I think there's there's other aspects of it. First of all, that enemy attack, they're trying to create some sort of hysteria by cancelling things and saying that they think because it could be a target for Ukraine. It's creating some sort of hysteria about Ukraine. It's creating, so it's um, not mobilising society as such, but putting them on edge. So maybe it is mobilising in some sense. So it's kind of repeating those narratives of we are not safe with what's going on with Ukraine. I think the second thing that this, and this would work in Russia's, in Russia's favor. At the moment, Russia probably does not have the equipment to carry out these regional plus the national Victory Day parade. Because they usually feature all these fancy weapons of war. Yeah. They're using them. Yeah, and they are using. Yeah, yeah I was going to say they're using them, but also they've lost a lot of them in the war. So it's they're, mm-hmm. they're completely depleted. The army is depleted. And so they can't even, they're either going to show a parade that's not going to have much there or nothing at all. So I think that works in their favor of canceling it because they don't have to show that depleted army. People don't want to see that. You know, there are a lot of people in Russia who only see the war through the media. The kind of third part is that there's discontent in Russia. So even though I've, we've had this conversation about whether this is Russia's war or Putin's war, there is still dissent in Russia. There's still discontent about the war taking place in general. And we've seen, for example, the um, spontaneous fires of key places, recruitment offices, for example. So there's there's possibly a, a, an issue there in considering, well, will someone who is Russian use this as an opportunity to to protest the war. So I think that works in the favor of Russia in the sense that it's it's accounting for things that could go wrong before it actually happens. And by not having these regional victory day parades, it's just just cutting off the possibility of these things happening before it even even takes place. Do you think that it's possible that one of the reasons they would back away from more public parades and more public gatherings is just Maybe we're already saying this, but like the fewer large crowds there are, the easier it'll be to police and potentially stop like some kind of attack, I guess, like whether it's like a, I mean, Ukraine likely has little motive to like attack some large crowd of people, but there have been, as you mentioned, like sabotages and, and clearly like, you know, drone incidents. And it's sort of unclear, like what direction this is going, whether there there could be like, I mean, there's clearly like a, there are people that would like to see more violence in Russia just to raise the yeah. cost of the invasion. So limiting the number yeah. of large crowds you have is just probably good policy i guess if that, if you're if you're interested in not letting that happen yeah i think so and i think the discontent is like it's not necessarily highlighting the cost of war but like people aren't able to publicly declare you know if they are discontented in the war so if they're doing something secretly but doing something that has a huge um that that does attract attention like setting a building on fire for example they're, that's why they're choosing some of these these different methods of protesting if that makes sense Uh, And so I do think it's a way of policing it. 
Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week. Mm-hmm.